Hello, world. Welcome to the Speed Strength Show. I'm Tommy. And I'm Christian. And if you could be the best in the world at any single skill, what would it be? Oh, skill. Yeah. We actually, this came up in practice the other day, but we were talking about what sport. If you could be mm. the best at a particular sport, what would it be? But skill. Yeah. So, like, think of if, if you're a basketball player, you could be the best dribbler in the world or the best jumper in the world. Oh, the best, best skill. Sprinter. I'm thinking beyond. I'm thinking beyond the sports world now. I'm thinking like. Where's your mind going? Oh, and it could be anything. And that's the context. The question. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, how can I be like, what would make me the best possible person or what would, you know, it would it. That's uh, yeah. My mind was immediately leaving the sport realm going. Yeah. Sport is not really that important when you think of like all the global. Oh, no. Um demands of life and, and skills and abilities you can have it's important for us because we're in it but you know i'd much rather be super smart than you know be the you know highest jumper in the world or something like that i mean we're smart but we're not sending people to space no exactly yeah nasa's <laughs> not hiring us to you know put people on the on mars or something like that um, I would have to think it's, I'm, I'm thinking something knowledge or yeah. communication based. So that way, every time somebody left a conversation with you, like that has to be the smartest person in the world. They just leave like, wow. They're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Their mind just operates differently. I don't know what I would pick. Maybe it'd be a personality trait where you just like you are invincible or impervious to anybody else's thoughts because i find like there's a lot of time, down yeah like because i'm thinking like what if if you look at all the the major revolutions breakthroughs yeah. uh technological advances people coming up with ideas it's someone coming up with something where probably a large group of people are like, ah, that's pretty stupid. Yeah, it's in but spite then, of the doubters. Exactly. So I'm wondering if there is a, I don't know what you would classify it as, but if there's like a, a mental focus or resiliency to shun the outside haters, the criticism, because then if you had like a, a wild kind of offbeat, off the rails idea that might be just a completely different way of thinking, you know, you could, you, you would have the, the the confidence and the focus to see something like that through. Yeah, it's almost like a confidence trait where you're like, this is my idea and I know it's good. Like, if I don't have to worry about people being like, oh, it's not going to work out. Like, that confidence yeah. in that. Or you don't know if it's good or not, but you're willing, yeah. you have the confidence to see it through. And then if it doesn't work, yeah. you're like, wow, that was stupid. I'll try again. But I'm sure there's a lot of things that haven't even progressed forward because if there was enough negative energy in sort of the infancy of that idea, it gets shut down. It takes a pretty strong and resilient individual to, if 10 people say, hey, this is a stupid thing to do, and you're like, ah, but it might work. I'm going to try it. Well, and it could just be the right person or the wrong person, I guess, saying, hey, this is a bad idea. Like, it could be that one person where, like, they're a huge mentor or whatever, and like, that just shuts down everything. It's like, oh, okay, never mind. If they say it's bad, it's probably bad. Yeah. I just think of that quote. I forget. Um, 
it was somebody who was i think henry ford had reached out to them to be an investor in ford as he was trying to start up the the factory and i think the person's response was the automobile is a fad the horse is forever Mm. and then didn't want to invest in ford which in hindsight is they probably lost a tremendous amount of money um but you get those types of things where someone's doing something very different, very revolutionary. It's it's bucking current trends. And yeah. so I, I think that's what I would pick. I don't know what you call it. I don't know what the exact trait would be. But that, that I, I think I would pick something along the lines of that. Yeah. Mine's similar in the sense of, I'd probably say like mine's the, something around the creative, like the business creativity. Like you always see those entrepreneurs out there that are incredibly successful that just have the knack to come up with genius ideas that work. Yeah. There's people who are super creative, but it doesn't work. But there's people with that tuition of like, this is going to make them billions of dollars and they do it and it always works. Similar to you, doesn't necessarily have a word for it, but it's probably where I would go with mine as well, where it's like these little more abstract skills that aren't commonly talked about or not necessarily clearly defined. Yeah, and maybe that's what makes them so difficult to kind of narrow down or find those those people until somebody just hits on idea after idea. And it's like this yeah. person who invents things can't miss. Everything they create is a helpful tool. Everything they put together is a system that just is is fluid and it works. And then there's other things that are like overly complicated and convoluted. And then it's a dumpster fire every time it gets put together. And you know, but it's hard to tell until you have that track record who has it and who doesn't. But I think that's what oh, I would totally. want to have. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, like someone who could do that regardless of what's going on externally. Yeah, because I think that would serve you well in several avenues of life. I mean, you see a few billionaires like that that are just unapologetically doing things. For better or for worse. <laughs> Yeah, for better or for worse, but you do see that like comp. It's not a confidence, but kind of a confidence. Yeah, and so I feel like that would whatever you wanted to do yeah. doesn't necessarily have to be leading a business and trying to build a billion trillion dollar empire, but it could just be, you know, you're going to coach differently, you're going to yeah. be a school teacher, and you're going to teach different. You're going to, you know, try to you know, change the way that you approach your medical practice or your, you know, whatever, whatever your, your role, your passion is. I think there's a degree of confidence in shunning out, you know, I don't want to say critical feedback because critical feedback is helpful, but the, the just for no good reason, negative, negative feedback of the haters, because that, 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 that will pull people back or restrict them from reaching their potential. So I think that's why I would pick that because then I could still be doing things that I was passionate about, but I would probably be better at doing anything that I was doing that I was passionate about. Yeah. Like there's always that noise around you surrounding whatever you're doing, whether it's from other people in the practice, other people who are like from the product itself, whether it's things that you see out there like, Oh, that person does this. Like there's always that noise around you and it's like, oh, I could do that or I could do this versus knowing, hey, I need to do that. This is the path and be able to filter out and block out some of that noise that may just 
muddy the waters versus actually constructively help you, I think is the difference that you're kind of referring to there. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that would be my pick. Like that's my final answer. Don't know what I'm calling it, but I'm locking it in. And, you know, I wish I had that, but you know, this is, this is not a fantasy world where we can, we can do that. I'll try my best in my everyday practice, but that that's what I think I would pick. Step one starts now, Tommy. Yeah. I'm shunning at all the haters. <laughs> I'm never going to talk to anybody ever again. Just be in my own mind, and then I can't be corrupted by anyone's thoughts. But yeah, I would say like mine's definitely that creativity skill, that invariable good creativity that happens out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, you kind of have to be creative, I think, within, you know, what we do with coaching and programming and trying to find a way to make people better i think there's an inherent level of creativity you probably need and even more so i think when you start to explore what we'll talk about today is you know working with parasport i think even that requires an even a step above with the with the creativity because some of the traditional or well practiced tried and true methods may not be feasible depending on the constraints that you're you're dealing with so i know i'm sure you've had your fair share of creative oh, yeah. kind of workarounds with with parasport and and things like that but i think this will be a good one today kind of you know talk about something something a little bit different yeah i'm excited about you know and the creativity piece is pretty accurate because i remember when i first got working with para-athletics specifically I didn't realize how broad the classification system for para athletics is compared to most there's, other para sport. There's so many. Well, and essentially like any impairment that exists for the most part, like there's a classification on the para end in athletics yeah. and specifically, whereas you no know, rugby is specifically wheelchair rugby or wheelchair basketball or goal balls, only VI athletes or yes. Swimming is pretty broad, I think, as well. Like they've got a fairly large classification system, but most other para sports are one or two categories, maybe three. Maybe, Whereas yeah. if you look at athletics, they've got six, six different classifications. But within each classification, there's two to three layers within them as well. Like it's so all-encompassing. Yeah, which I think is a great thing because then, you know, it's it it, it's open and it allows for basically anybody who wants to compete in track and field or athletics as they call it everywhere else in the world um you you can compete in it and you can compete at a high level you can go to the paralympics you can go to a world championships you can you, you can do everything that the sport has to offer which i think is a you know one of the reasons why i think probably track and field as a whole is doing a very good job yeah um you know with parasport because of how open inviting and accessible it is because of all the different classifications that that can be made for it yeah really the only limitation that exists on the para track side is the events themselves like not every event is always present you are missing a couple but beyond that like unless you're a paramarathon person 
or want to do the 200 meter like you're you're usually pretty set or like the 800 meters not it doesn't exist either yeah like you don't have the 3k steeplechase but beyond a couple of events missing that's i mean yeah there's the option for somebody to compete in probably any event that they want or they'll at least find something they would be interested in competing in yeah, and I guess those for anyone who don't know, there's kind of six main classifications for para-athletics. Um, how the number system works. So you have a T or an F at the beginning of it. T stands for track, F stands for field. For whatever reason, jumps are in the track versus in the field. I know, I've always for a later bit. That. Yeah. That's... And then essentially the lower the number, indicates the less function an individual will have. So if we're talking about the T11 to T13, we're talking about visually impaired athletes. T11 has less vision than T12s and T13. So T13 has the most vision. T11s are guided. So that's where you see your runners with guides. T12 is a hybrid where they've got, some have a guide, some run free independently. And T13 is all independent running. Mm-hmm. You get your T20s, which is intellectual impairment. I believe the definition is an IQ under 75. So a lot of that, especially in the endurance side, you're seeing it affects pacing, like pacing strategy. So I work with the T20 athlete. The conversation after his races is never, oh, I'm just not fit enough to run a 355. It's, ooh, I kicked too early or kicked too late or I kicked way at the beginning of the race and came out super hot. Like it's always tactical pacing issues is typically what we see with T20s. Um, then you get to the T30 categories, which is coordination impairment. So this is things like cerebral palsy, brain trauma, things like that. You get 34s, which is a wheelchair class in the CP category. You get 36, 37, 38, which are your ambulatory and throwing classes, which again, higher number, more function, and they just have a classification process that works down. Um, yeah. Then you get to the 40s, which is upper limb uh, impairment. So that refers to people like congenital, congenitally born with like missing an arm or missing part of their arm or missing a hand. And I believe it's 47, 46 are the two of those. So 47, you'd be like, most of your arm is really there or has full function. And then I think the 46 is where you would see like someone missing a full arm or missing both arms kind of thing. Then you get to the 50s, which are like your wheelchair racing classes. So you got 51, 52. 53 and 54. And then when you look at the throwing events, you also have a 55. Yep. And essentially what differentiates the four racing categories or the throwing categories is how much trunk function comes up. And then also like hand and tricep function. So you look at the 51, which is the lowest function class, limited to no hand function, almost no tricep function, zero core function and back function. 52s, some hand function. Most of them can hold a glove to hit onto the wheelchair with. But again, no trunk function, really. Your 53s have everything but trunk function. And then your 54s have full abdominal function and like some hip function. But essentially just can't walk is the differentiator between them. Um, and then you get your 60s, which is your, your blade runners. Yeah. So and that's where you're going... Um, it's above and below is the classification. So whether you have one or two blades doesn't matter. It's are the blades below the knee or above the knee. It's kind of the differentiator between those ones. So those are your main meat and potato classifications in track and field. 
Yeah, and you can see as we're talking about, you know, you know, you look at something, I'll compare it like we had Molly on the show about 35 yeah. episodes and she works with seated volleyball. So in volleyball, you have standing volleyball and seated volleyball. And maybe there's another type of volleyball that I'm not aware of. It was only seated because she works with the yeah. seated team. Uh, but, you know, you got, okay, you got seated or standing. Okay, that's your pick. And now you're in track and field and you go, okay, here's the 30 different classifications we have and all the numbers and what it means. And like, I don't know, I'd be curious. I think disclaimer, put this out there. You work with with a lot more para-athletes than I do. So your experience is going to be a little bit broader. You work with many more coaches that work with para-athletes. My experience now working with para is kind of case study type thing, like N of two or, you know, something like that. Yeah. So very, uh, very small numbers I'm working with. So, you know, you probably have a better perspective from a, a broader focus having work having worked with and working with more athletes in parasport is where mine like i said i would describe more more of a case study on my mm -hmm. end where it's individuals here and there um but did you was there anything that you were like not worried about but like because i don't know were you aware of the classification system before you got in or not really not at all so when I came in, okay, so that's where I wasn't sure if that was like when you yeah. saw all the list that that was daunting for you as a coach going like, oh, I had no idea there was this many classifications. Like, what am I getting into? Well, what differentiates them was the biggest piece. Like that was so I remember when I came in the interview for this job, they kind of asked me like, hey, you have zero pair experience. What how are you going to figure it out? Like, and like my answer was, I don't know. Every athlete's a puzzle, just gonna figure it out. Like it's like it's one of those things of pair is just a different piece of a puzzle that's a little bit more unique than what you typically see in able-bodied sport. But at the end of the day, every athlete's got their nuances that makes them a little bit different, whether it be injury history or whatever that is. So that was my approach to it. Okay. It's just a puzzle to figure out. It doesn't change how I approach it. And again, that was a big piece until you start seeing people within the same event and classification, you don't really understand the difference. So we have two people in the T30 categories. One's a 37, one's a 38. They're both 1500 meter runners. And that was the first time I really had that, oh, this is the difference between the classification moments. Because you see them run together, you see them lift together, you see them do all these very adjacent type activities. And that's where you see the difference in function and capacity regard, like relative to they're both coordination athletes but the difference between a 38 and a 37 is pretty apparent. Like you watch them run, especially, and you're like, oh, okay. Like I see the difference now. I get why the two classes exist. Because one looks very smooth, not quite as much of like the stiffness and rigidity you see from CP sometimes. Whereas in the 37, like you're seeing the one really rigid side and, you know, one side's got this nice bounce, but the other side's a little bit heavier and flatter versus the 38s don't have that same contrast between left and right that you typically see theirs is more of a fatigue response so i know the 138 guy um when he gets really fatigued or like really high intensity work that's when it starts to appear and come out so that's when you start noticing like oh you're not you had a hard session yesterday on the track oh yeah i could tell like you're a little bit stiffened on the one side kind of thing 
Yeah, I mean, I've always thought of, I mean, parasport in a way that's no different than comparing sport to sport or coaches to coaches. I, I think this this came up way, way back. Um, and almost every time if I have a conversation with somebody about what makes a great coach, well, whether you're a basketball coach or a volleyball coach or a track and field coach or whatever, 95% of coaching is exactly the same. The traits that make a great coach great are not always the, the X's and O's of the sport, yeah. right? And so I've always kind of taken the same lens with parasport that there is much more similar than there is different. And I think this is probably even truer Absolutely. in track and field in the sense that you are still working with athletes. These individuals are competitive. They are driven. There are things that they are good at. There are things that they are not good at. There are, you know, there's injury history they, they deal with. There is, you know, th all of the puzzle pieces that you're kind of putting together, whether it's, you know, basketball, volleyball, you know, whatever, there's always so much that's, that's similar. And I think even in track and field, when you compare, you know, the, the events, whether it's like you said, parasport classification or not, you know, if I have a seated thrower, the goal is still to throw the implement as far in the sector as possible. The, the goal of the event hasn't changed. And so I always think back to kind of the, the quote about, you know, the principles remain, but your methods change. Yep. So very much in the case of athletics or track and field, whether you're working with an Olympian or a Paralympian doesn't matter in the sense that the demands of the sport and the principles are, I'm going to say yeah. in most cases, staying true. The goal is still to get from the start to the finish as fast as you can to jump as far yeah. in the pit as you can. Um, the, the, again, the principles haven't changed maybe based on the classification or who you're working with, the methods may change. And that's where I think there's a little bit of difference and you have to get creative, but for the most part, it, it's not really that different. You're working with driven competitive athletes that want to do the best in their sport. Yeah. And your role as a coach is there to guide them, figure out the sport. What do they have? What do they don't have? Try to promote what they have, give them what they don't have and, you know, let them be the best athlete they can be. Yeah. We still develop capacities and skills just like you would any other athlete, right? Like there's still skills we can develop that will improve their technical model in their sport. There's still capacities that you'll develop that will improve the technical model of their sport. Just so you said to just throw stuff further or, go faster, chair, run back. Like it's the exact same thing, essentially. And yeah, just the methods need to be adapted versus like depending on the classification, essentially. Yeah, or even what works and what doesn't work for them, which again is no different than, you know, any other athlete that you're you're working with. Like in, in, in my case, because it's, you know, a couple of people kind of sprinkled in amongst the larger group yeah. Well, I mean, if you're, they're still training with the people in their event area. So yeah. in this case, I'm going, well, the event is the same. 
if it's a sprint, it's A to B as fast as you can. If it's a jump, it's jump as far as you can. If it's a throw, throw as far as you can. And so the, the structure or the, the overall skeleton of the sessions I've created doesn't really change. And it's just, oh, okay, you prefer to, to do this over that. Okay, then let's put that exercise in for yeah. our, you know, the exercise we're going to use to develop power or an exercise we're going to use to clean up an asymmetry or a hip dominant lift or whatever it happens to be. The skeleton structure remains. The principles, the fundamental things you're trying to accomplish remain. You're just going about them a different way. Oh, totally. That, that, and I don't that, know if that's that really been your experience is. as well. 100%. So I say like the biggest contrast, like I've had to express that point. We have two wheelchair athletes in our hub right now. One's a T34, so coordination athlete. Um, fully ambulatory. Um, I, I believe the only inhibited function he has is to his lower limbs. So we just can't walk with what, you, what would be like a typical gait. He was a day chair that we kind of talked about, like day chair competition and stuff like that. So he's not walking around fatiguing himself because walking is not very efficient for him. Versus a T51 athlete who's got no hand function, no core function, limited shoulder function. Um, training between those two athletes is starkly contrasted in terms of how it flows. So our T34 athlete, I build the session. It can have, you know, supersets triple sets quad sets and he can move from station to station really easily and really accessibly that's not an issue at all for him because he can walk around and go from indoors to outdoors to the chair so we've done triple sets where it's hey bench med ball throw then an uphill sprint in his racer and that's his triple set because he has no issue moving from a to b we're sort of t51 athlete and we talked about this a bit before the call our gym is not very para-friendly we have lots of ledges, lots of lips. Everything's dark. So if you have VI issues, it's hard to see the lips. Um, our cable stacks are in a corner and it's all compressed and not very mobile. So for T51 athlete, like I've got to stack 25 kilo plates into the cable stack to hold his chair in place. His chair doesn't have brakes because it's a rugby chair because it used to be a wheelchair rugby guy and he's transferred over to athletics. So I'm stacking plates to hold his chair in place, but because he's got no core function, I'm putting him to like a wrestling snap down or like seat belting behind his back to hold him into the posture that I want him to. And I also have to feed him the handles so he can't grab them on his own. So the work and kind of messing around, especially in our space with him is a lot more intensive. And we also can't just hop between two or three different exercises throughout the gym because the setup in each space is so unique depending on what's going on. So for him, the flow of the work goes very much, hey, we're going to set up this station, maybe do it with a med ball so you can just like pop back and forth between. But then it's tough of in our space. If he's set up on a cable stack, he actually can't get in and out of that space anymore because of all the different lips and lids. Lid. Those sets, move on. Finish all those sets, move on. So the flow for him is very different than someone who's ambulating around. Well, it... Yeah. And again, the, and, and I think those are the, I don't want to say the small challenges because that's obviously something that could tremendously hamper the session where, yeah. you know, in this case, individuals having difficulty because of how the space was built, navigating around and getting from yeah. one thing to the next. 
Um, but you start programming where, like you said, okay, we, this is what we want to do. We do all of it. And when we're done, we'll move to the next thing. And then we'll do that. Yeah. We'll do all of it. We'll move to the next thing. Does it, you know, maybe limit some of your options, like you said, to pair or potentiate things? Yeah, a little bit. But at the end of the day, you're still able to get the work done. That would be no different than in any other space where you'd have perhaps a, like equipment limitation or, you know, environmental yeah. constraints that don't let you, you know, do whatever. Like for any athlete I have right now, we can't really pair med ball work with anything because our yeah. weight room is built under bleachers. So we have a slanted roof on a 45 degree angle. And so we don't actually have the ceiling space to throw a med ball yeah. vertically because we would take out the ceiling and we have a very, very expensive projector in there, which if somebody hit would cost us tens of thousands of dollars. And we don't have the space like horizontally or depth wise yeah. to do. I mean, I guess yeah. we could, but you'd have to like, okay, everybody stand off to the side. This person's going to throw the med ball forward. Don't get in the way. Like, it's just, it's not feasible. So again, I think that's where, you know, the idea that it's, you just got to get, I know it's easy to say, you just got to get creative, but I mean, these are, these are things that I think probably more coaches than not probably have some of these skill sets and probably have the creative solutions and workarounds because at the end of the day, you're going to find, you know, barriers or challenges to your, uh, I guess the, what did Cole talk about in the last episode? He said, there's like the, uh, like the dream scenario. And then realistically yeah. the best that you can put together with what you got. And that's, th that's something you have to do everywhere you go. You're never going to have the perfect world. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, you're still finding a way to train all the athletes you're working with to the principles that kind of govern the sport and the performance in the sport well pragmatically just understanding how the facility matches the flow and matches the group of the session and i think this is a huge value of if you've only ever been in one sport in one location going out and just seeing different sports in different locations is so valuable right like you and i have had the lucky like you've worked at waterloo and then mcmaster and then u of a and then private sector and then guelph again like you've seen all these different groups in different facilities and that's so valuable. Like the difference between being at U of A where you got 10,000 square feet and unlimited space to then like when I went to the high school, I think we had, we had a shoe box of 1500 square feet with 75 people in it at a time. Sessions are just built differently. It's just understanding that flow and it's no different than that. It's just like understanding, okay, what were limitations to space? What are the limitations to the group? How do we make things flow nice and just make it work? Whether that's textbook or ideal, it doesn't really matter. It's just figuring out pragmatically, like how can I get our menu items checked? How can we take the boxes we need to tick in a way that's flowing and functional and not headache? And you're probably going to have some trial and error. Oh, cool. And like, I know I have a little bit, but I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, and then once you're, once you're kind of in it, once you're working with the individuals, it's like anybody else, you know, you, you get to know the people, you get yeah. to know what, what is working for them, what is not working for them, what their preferences are, what their preferences are not. Um, 
you know, I mean, we're fortunate to have a bunch of, you know, training options available. There are athletes I work with that, you know, love our Kaiser machines yeah. and I might not be able to pull them back over to the weightlifting side because they love mm -hmm. seeing the number pop up every time. I got people who are the opposite yeah. that, you know, if they have the chance to get off the Kaiser and do weightlifting instead, they, they love to see those machines thrown out the facility window. Yeah. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you, you start to work through some things and you go, okay, uh, you know, I got an idea, you know, with this, or I got an idea with that, let's try it. And then they, oh yeah, this works really well. I like this. Okay, perfect. That's an option now on the training menu. Oh, it didn't work. Okay. We'll scrap that one. We'll come up with, with some different ideas. And yeah. I think that's, that's kind of the, the fun part of it. But it's also, like I said, something that I think is present in coaching in general. And yeah. so, you know, it maybe visually appears very different, right? If you're watching, you know, somebody yeah. race down the track in a wheelchair versus run, like visually it's, oh, well, that person is seated and they're wheeling their way down the track. That person yeah. is running down the track. Yeah. Biomechanically, there's probably a lot of differences in the movement and the muscles being used and etc cetera, etc cetera. but again that your training principles haven't changed the fundamental goal in the sport hasn't changed there's still a component of it's not stride length stride frequency obviously in a, yeah. a wheelchair but there is a rate at which you are turning the wheels and there is distance being covered the same way in stride length stride frequency and those are the principles that would govern your speed and you know so it I think that's like, to me, a, a big part of it is kind of helping remove some of the barriers because I think yeah. as humans, we just tend to take notice of the things that are different. And even if one thing is different and nine things are the same, sometimes we have a tendency to ignore the nine things that yeah. are the same and we kind of fixate on the thing that's different. So at least in my experience, which again is more small case studies here and there, you know, N of one over here, N of one over there. It's, that's been my experience that much more is the same than different. And 100%. it's no different than any other coaching I've done where I have to just, you get creative with the principles and the things that govern the sport. Yeah. Oh, totally. I 100% agree with that idea of there is more that's the same than there is ever different. Right. Like, and that's, that's a huge piece that underpins that. Um, and they're still working towards a technical model of performance. You're still splitting hairs of, oh, if we do this slightly differently, or if we do that slightly differently, how does it influence performance? And I think right now in Parasport, we're in such a golden well of performance. Like we've seen the last three years, there's been world records set every single world in most events now. And it's a really exciting part of being that sport is like you're at this cutting edge of I think the popularity and I think it's a couple of different factors, but the popularity of the sport, the awareness of the sport and the momentum it's built that we're getting better and better training, better, and better athletes, more and more people in it. So we're seeing performances from five years ago be beat by like two or three seconds in a 200 meter, which is nuts. That's just a massive improvement. One of the Canadian athletes, he's been in the sport for 12 years. He's still PBing. He's 41 or 42 years old, which is crazy yeah right and especially on like some like the wheelchair side i'd say is one of the starkest contrasts 
because there's so much beyond just the athlete running, for example. And you, the Formula One nerd in you, Tommy, would like this because that is where wheelchair racing is going. So it's very little now about, hey, we're going to put you in a chair, build a really good physical engine about the person in the chair and a race. But now it's becoming about how do we position you in the chair relative to the wheel? And then what are the parts? And then where is the weight coming from? What's the camber of the wheels relative to how fast it can go around? Like all of these elements are starting to come into play now where it's, this is 5% an improvement that stack up on each other to make someone go a second and a half faster around the track in a form yeah, like, it's, like that, like it's nuts. Well, and it, and I think what's kind of cool for you to be involved, I've never worked with wheelchair athletes, um, like wheelchair racers like that. Um, and the cool part is that, like you said, it is a little bit like race car driving esque in the sense that every, every sport for the most part has some technological component. There's an engineering component, but for example, in track and field as coaches, we're at least in most of my experience, we're so far removed from that engineering side. I'm not building and designing shoes. I'm not building and designing runway or track surfaces or poles or, you know, implements and things like that. But in your experience with like the, the wheelchair athletes, that's all happening in the same place. Like you said, you're, you're tweaking the chair. You're looking at maybe materials that things could be built out of how you're positioning people, combining it with the physical performance and, you know, all that stuff. So bringing all that stuff together is like, that's pretty cool. That well, you're, it changes everything. Yeah. And you get to be there live for all of it. You're not removed from any of it, whether it's the no. kind of the engineering performance or the tactical performance or the athletic physical performance. You're yeah. you, with that in particular, it's all right there for you to have free play with one honestly like for me from a strength and conditioning end it's the most involved i've been from a how do we influence a technical model perspective right because the coach is made so our one athlete this our t34 that we talked about earlier he came to us for the first time last year and our our coach that we're with our head of pair coach super creative very much a tinkerer type individual and does amazing work on that front and he's got a mentor out in Europe where they're exploring a lot of this wheelchair changing stuff. And like, how do we adjust the position of the athlete in the chair relative to the wheel? How do we adjust the camber? All these pieces. So he's made huge sweeping changes to this athlete's technical model. Like the way he's applying force into the wheel is night and day completely different than how he did before. So then we're going into film with like, hey, this is how we push before. This is how he pushes now. This is how we need him to push in this new position. What can we do in the gym that helps teach these skills and enforce these positions that he needs to enter in this new space to be able to apply force properly? Because now we've completely changed position, but he's pushing into the wheel and applying force the same way he did prior. So now how do we expand his constraints to push into the wheel in this new position to allow him to actually improve performance right so that's the piece where we've spent so many times splitting hairs over film of like okay like how can we promote this like torso oscillation while it's hitting into the wheel because you see this almost like kind of like butterfly swim approach where they come up they hit into the wheel the torso goes down then it raises up and they hit to the wheel and come up yeah it's like a he never had that quality before because the position is in is way too upright so it's all just like arms pushing into the chair with no torso 
movement. But if you're watching, it's probably like a lack of rhythm and flow. It was just like straight muscling, muscling their way down the track. Yeah, it was like boom, 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 boom. He's really strong, really powerful, but there was no yeah rhythm and flow. And if you watch medalists in the T54, the T53, and the 34 class, you see this like flow and rhythm, and it's quite beautiful to watch. Very similar to swimming when you watch them in the water. The bugs, yeah, they're like, under the water and they dolphin kick. It's this snake-like rhythmic motion, and it's very pretty to watch when it's done really well. So we spent a whole year trying to work on that with this guy be like hey like this is what we want because the torso gives you the lean in it's the setup to a hard push into the wheel and so that was the process of like how do we promote this in the gym beyond just getting strong right so yeah. it's connecting those dots between capacity development improving is the raw engine but then also influencing the driver behind the car as well as how do we improve your ability to race around the track kind of thing yeah and so yeah like i like to me, that's so cool. And again, it's not that different from, no. you know, hey, torso posture, spine position, hip position, the central part of our body sets up, the, the, the proximal sets up the distal. And yeah. again, here we're looking at no different. The proximal setup, you know, is allowing distal performance to, you know, kind of be shown. And it's cool that you have all these different experiences. Cause again, like, you know, like I said, mine are just kind of, case studies and they're they're not i guess not as exciting as as these ones in the sense that you know like i'm there's maybe times of the year where we're focused a little bit more on you know trying to you know even out imbalances between left and right yeah. um you know if you have like an affected and a non-affected side and things like that and obviously early in the base season the you know the the more that you can begin yeah. to bridge the gap with that then you know that improves running performance and jumping performance and throwing performance and things like that because you're you're still using your entire body um but you know then as we get into competition there's you know things that that work and things that don't work so it's like okay we're going to move we're going to move light we're going to move fast we're going to be powerful you know yeah. and uh sometimes we try to keep i mean at least in my case we're not doing a lot of bilateral movements because of the the asymmetries um so you know maybe early in the year we're using true single leg single arm type patterns and then yeah. you know when we need to move a little bit faster uh you know closer to comp closer to you know championship yeah. type time then we might move to something that's like you know split stance or something like that so there's still double leg support but you're getting more bias to one side than the other um you know again kind of smaller smaller changes like that but it's nothing uh, at least it like from a coaching perspective it doesn't seem like it's anything super drastic again i've never had the feeling that i'm like completely overhauling mm -hmm. programs or changing things for, for for that type of stuff because again it's you know the principles of the sport remain um but you know the, the conversation you're just talking about that's really really cool like i said and that's like anything you know you're watching the video you're looking at this and you're going okay how can we how can we change that and it's it's really cool to see the the, the depth that that stuff can go into and you know how creative from a coaching standpoint both strength conditioning tactically technically that you can dive into this stuff and i think it, i think it's awesome to see and to hear about 
Oh yeah, it's kind of like we said earlier, like it's all that is so new, especially on the wheelchair front, that it, everything's cutting edge at this stage. And you yeah. know, you're bringing in people from from cycling, like we're bringing in people from like triathlon Canada, who work with the bikes, like the bike mechanic people. And we've learned even about like tire pressure, because we just assumed, oh yeah, we wanted to pump the tires nice and heavy, and they're like, oh no 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 no, you don't want a super firm tire. So what happens with the super firm tires, it digs into the track more and creates more friction. And there's a balance. So we actually went with a more deflated tire because it's more spread and flat on the track. And they're like, oh, yeah, it makes a way bigger difference when you're going around the corner. And the coach was playing with them. They're like, holy crap, like such a like an, a simple thing that gives you 2% of performance. Well, and you laugh as you're talking about the motor support. It's the same way, right? The more deflated the tire is, the more it helps you in the turns. Yeah, but you pump up the tire a little bit and it's stiffer. It's a little easier on the straightaways. So if you're like you said, if you're dealing with the bend and oh, the straight, yeah. then you're trying to find what's what's the balance and the tire pressure. That's and that's something Hey, the NSCA textbook has nothing about that in yeah. in all the all the information. And like that's that's I mean, it's just, this is cool stuff that you're getting to do. Well, and it's, and it's going elements of I don't know if anyone's seen. Have you ever seen the gloves that they hit the chair with? Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about them, so I'm sure there's all kinds of technological things going on in there that, you know, the lay person is not aware of. Yes, again, it depends where the conversation goes in terms of who you're talking to, but essentially the basics of how they hit the wheel, so you got the flat wheel, and there's a rim on it that probably sticks out about an inch, roughly, and it's depending on the, the material, it's usually a rubber rim that's fully coated um and you can like take out the inside save weight whatever the conversation and then you hit it with the glove so essentially imagine a rubber mma glove but instead of the padding being on the knuckles all the materials on the inside because that's what they're hitting with yeah, is the inside of the fist to push onto the wheel um and one of the conversations we have with our athlete is hey do we want to use different gloves for different events because our athlete races the 100 the 400 the 800 so in terms of event, it's a pretty broad classification. And we're talking about conversation like Formula One, like you have wet tires, you have dry tires, like you have more cornering tracks, you have more top speed tracks. So we're starting to have the conversation now of, okay, do we have an 800 glove versus a 100 glove? And then do we have a 100 rain glove versus a 100 sun glove? So like these are the conversations that are starting to happen now where it's like, okay, is it going to be rubbered, covered in suede? Because that's where athlete uses now. And for him, he likes that because the suede doesn't get influenced by the weather. So if it's really humid, he has no issues holding onto the rim. But then you see some folks at um, at Worlds in the 100-meter T34s, there's a guy who came rocketing out at the beginning of the race. Like, he was five meters above everyone, 10 meters in. Like, holy crap, like, what happened? But then you hear the commentators talking, like, oh, yeah, he uses um, it was a type of fabric glove that gives him lots of grip into the wheel. So they're like, oh, it's great on the acceleration. But then as soon as they got past 60 meters, he started to fall back. So the glove gave him the ability to push into the wheel with longer impulses. But once the impulses got shorter and shorter and shorter in terms of the time, it's demand, tougher to, he started to struggle. So it's like that conversation of like, okay, like how do we manage like the pros and the cons of each glove to maximize the pros and the cons of each event? So it's an interesting conversation when you're talking about this kind of like, almost like a technology race to an extent on the wheelchair side of 
how do we manage what we have versus the events constraints versus the individual constraints to figure out like the equipment that works best. It's cool to be a part of. Yeah. And that to me is like the, you know, the cool thing with what you're doing is that, yeah, I'm probably still going to stand by my statement that 95% of what you do oh, totally. is exactly the same, but the 5% that's different, like it's pretty damn cool. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not different in a, in a bad way or a challenging way. It's just like, it's, it, it's cool. And it's cool that you get to be involved in, in that and kind of see it up close. Cause again, if you end up going and coaching anywhere else, doing anything else, these are experiences and learnings that you're going to take with you. And it's making you yeah. a better coach, a more adaptable coach along the way. Yeah, it's only just changed the constraints, right? It's no different if you look at what's going on with some of the U.S. track and field. Have you seen the exigent stuff that's going on down there? The wearable yeah. resistance? Yeah, there's like the, the the technology world is moving so fast that it's so hard to keep up with it now. It's interesting. So I, uh, I had a conversation with that guy in Vegas when I was at the NSCA conference because he had okay. a stand set up and that this whole like, wheelchair constraints changing the skill thing remind me of it but this applies to the ambulatory side so it's not as simple as hey we're gonna throw some weight on your shin and run but it's, they're using like constraints-based approach learning stuff now where it's hey we're gonna position the weight in this way with maybe because all the weights are sort of like teardrops so it's a really light end and then a heavier end yeah so it creates those inertial patterns yeah so he was talking about like, oh yeah, when we're doing acceleration stuff, we'll put the teardrop close to the foot. He's like to drive the shank low towards the ground and have that pistoning action. He's like, we just use it. It's not like a throw on 20 pounds and just run. It's like a, hey, we're gonna position the weight in this way to pull this range of motion this way and like constraints. That's a cool thing to see in terms of how you adapt constraints to improve like the technical model. And that was just something that kind of reminded me of like something you'd use more on the running side. Yeah. And, you know, again, like constraints modeling, like that's, again, that's a principle. Those are theories that, you know, apply across the board to a wide variety of movements and you can use resistance, just a type of constraint you can use. You can use, you know, it, virtually anything can be a constraint. If it influences how the individual is going to move, you can put a constraint in place and influence and try to steer them towards the desired, the desired movement. And so, yeah, I mean, all that stuff to me is like super cool. And I mean, I'd be curious to hear about maybe some of the challenges or the, the barriers you've, you've found maybe like personally coaching them. I, I, I don't imagine you've probably found too many. Again, you're a smart coach, you're creative. I'm sure there were like initially like, oh, that's not going to work, but here's my solution. And it just requires yeah. you to do things differently. But I know across the board and in parasport in general, there can be some barriers, constraints and things that make it more difficult for like the athletes, the coaches and everybody involved. So, you know, you talked a little bit about the space as being one of them. Yeah, I would say of things that were hard. Can we allude to a bit before space has been the biggest thing? And I think space is the biggest difference maker working on the parasite that we've made so far because in terms of like the actual coaching and the movement okay certain classifications have a little bit more of like a learning turnover time some classifications maybe 
are less comfortable with certain type moves. So like the biggest example I can think of is our two VI athletes that we have aren't super comfortable in the air, but they have limited peripheral vision. They don't see the ground like that makes sense. So, we'll, but it's no different than anyone who's just bad at jumping. Like it's, they function very similarly, but the space has been like a key to unlock a lot of stuff for us. So our space wasn't built with para in mind. It was built with able-bodied rugby and rowing in mind. That was the original design of space. That's the groups who were there. And then over the years, the groups have just moved and changed. So now it's mostly pair in our facility. But we've got, again, like I said, black floors with black platforms. So all the things kind of blend in together. So if yeah, you have VI sick. athletes, yeah, especially with VI athletes who have limited vision, where it's like they can't see that difference. So then we started putting orange tape around. And then there was one side of our gym. You could only ambulate in one side of the gym. The other side of the gym, you had to like step over weight racks and step over platforms and dodge barbells. So we've given one of our guys two stitches in his eyes because oh. he hit a barbell because he was trying to navigate around the space. So we ended up going and readjusting one half of the gym and turning off platforms. And we created a three foot alleyway for them to walk into that space. So now they could access the main lifting area from both ends. Yeah, they're not. And our one VI athlete was like, oh, Christian, this walkway is great because I can just go. So you don't have to worry about hitting stuff. Yeah, they, they trust so nice. the, the space and the environment around them way more. Yeah. And that's the thing is like our, with our one VI athlete, in a space he knows, you would never guess he's blind. It's when he's in a place that's got lots of obstacles that he's unfamiliar with. So that's even something like keeping the gym clean makes a huge difference for him. Because if there's stuff scattered around or if there's just lots of people in the gym and weights are kind of around, you can see he starts to sort of like sit, look, he tries to look at the ground with his feet and make sure he's not stepping on equipment, right? Like, so little things yeah, like they're that. They're taking more time to take in what's going on around them or take in, take in the environment to see, is it safe yeah. for me to move here? Can I go here? Is that in the yeah. way? Is that not in the way? Yeah. And then that, like that opening up that three foot galloway to access the main lifting area has made a huge difference to the wheelchairs as well. Because if, the cable stacks also block the other entryway. So again, like we talked about with my T51 athlete, if I've got four 25 kilo plates stacked and his wheelchair and all the stuff set up, like you can't get in that side. Yeah. So it's it, honestly like the, the facility has been the biggest limiter and designing facilities with accessibility in mind is a huge, huge piece that I don't think anyone really talks about when they're really thinking like how we can design the space flow. Just, throw stuff into a gym and i feel like every gym's got that corner that's just like kind of the shit corner where all your random pieces of equipment are just jammed into the corner of the gym like everyone's got that yeah. every gym's got that now having had that corner and seeing how natively impacted our facilities being able, like our athletes being able to access the equipment it's like that's a huge no-no it's like just have everything breathe and have space and maybe have a little bit less open space but if you can at least navigate the space, like it doesn't matter at that stage. Yeah. Have you found in your experience that like, do you have a lot of machines in there? Do you find the machines like helpful? Is that something that, you know, provides more stability or, you know, kind of less nuance? Like I'm just thinking like you talk about the VI athlete and they don't like yeah. to jump. My first thought was, man, they would love to hop on our Kaisers because they could just let it rip. Yeah. You don't have to worry about leaving the ground and you are 
inside what would be a known, well, once you've got to know it, probably a known and comfortable environment where you could feel it. Okay, here's the top, here's the bottom, here's the platform. Once you're locked in and ready to go, it's like, okay, I can just like blast off. Here we go. Um, Cause you know that the, the Kaiser machines have actually been very helpful, at least in my end yeah. for this type of, for this type of stuff. Yeah, we haven't used a ton. We don't have the space for it. Like we're a quite small gym. Okay, um, I just wasn't sure what was already in there. If yeah. there were some machines love, or whatever. Yeah. So we had a couple things like cables. We have like a, like a hammer strength row machine, which for the wheelchair athletes is actually awesome because we have a prone row bench. But same thing, the prone row bench is like six feet tall. It, yeah. So I have a hard time getting on it. So now let's try to like get someone from a chair onto the six foot tall bench. Like it's so difficult. Yeah, you gotta like lift somebody up or do that. Like it's oh. yeah. So we use the hammer, like the seated hammer strength row a lot for that because that's super accessible. Because they just have to hop off. It's not uh, it's not this ridiculously tall hammer strength bench that we have. I don't know why someone ever made it so tall. Um, but yeah, something like the hammer strength would be good. A lot of the jumping stuff, I've just started using VBT as a feedback loop for them. Okay. Where it's like hey, I just want you to create a bigger number when you're doing this jumping exercise. And I'll read the number off to them. of like 1.2, 1.25. And they're just, I'm cueing them to focus on the number. Don't worry about the jumping space. Just focus on the number. Get the number higher. And that's been a pretty good feedback loop for me. Probably similar to what the Kaiser okay. would do. Yeah. That's why I was just curious because like over the years I have... I've never been a big fan of like machines in general. I've always thought that's better for gen pop bodybuilding kind of whatever. But I think as the, you know, the mad scientist in me has slowly started to, you know, kind of come out over the years of, of coaching, I'm starting to get more and more creative with seeing machines. And this is probably, you know, as a certified coach, I probably shouldn't say this, but you know, there's the, the label on the machine that says, use it this yeah. way. And I'm looking at that going, this is probably the only way I'm not going to use this machine, yeah. you know, as it was quote unquote safely intended. And I'm, you're constantly, I, at least I find myself constantly looking at machines now going, Oh, you could do this with that. You could do that. You could, I mean, our Kaiser squat machines, they're designed just to squat on. There's yeah. probably like, 15 different exercises we do on them because it's like uh, you know whatever we're trying to get creative so that's where i wasn't sure if at least my one of my first thoughts with you know para athletes is okay how can we kind of macgyver or jimmy rig some of these machines to make them potentially really useful training tools for yeah for the athletes because again like you were mentioning they might provide some stability or level of comfort or experience where the, the machine doesn't change. It stays the yeah. same. So then it's, you know, you got a good thing you're comfortable with and you can let it rip. So that's where I was just curious if kind of you found machines to be, to be helpful. Cause like I said, I I've used our Kaiser machines for almost everything, but squatting um, to kind but of do some different time. things. Yeah, I know. And I, again, if somebody got hurt doing something that wasn't a squat, I'd like, I'd probably be on the chopping block and, my days of Guelph would be over, but, um, it, you know, that's where I was just curious. And those are unfortunately the only machines that we have. We have the GHDs yeah. as well, which I've, 
you know, Jimmy rigged the times to turn into leg mm-hmm. curls and leg extensions and other things that, again, they're not designed for. <laughs> yeah, use it for um, more core stuff than anything at this stage than glute ham development. Yeah, core, or like the reverse hypers or whatever. Like there's a million different things we're I'm, I'm doing with them. So that's where I was curious in your experience, if you have any machines in there and if you've done stuff like that. Yeah, I would love to have some Kaiser squats and things like that. I mean, we talked about it before. The stimulus is what's going to dictate the adaptation. Yeah, well, and that's why, and to me, you can still get stimulus out of machines, even if they've been, you know, non-functional, whatever word, that means. Yeah, the they've been demonized by the industry because, you know, like you said, not functional. Yeah. Well, it's that conversation. Like, you're seeing a comeback of machines. Like, I know um, there's an SNC coach in the NBA who's using a lot of machines when they're traveling. And he's like, it's great. They don't have to think about it. They get the stimulus to get the adaptation we want. It's a globally low stress. It's like, why wouldn't we use machines in the NBA? Like, it makes a lot of sense for our guys. I'm like, oh, that's that's a really good point. Like, that makes a lot of sense. And then you're looking at, okay, like, let's talk about some of the coordination athletes. If you've got like cerebral palsy or brain trauma, again, a lot of the things that we typically see is one-sided deficiency. So like yeah. their balance will struggle a lot or they have less strength on the one side. So when we're talking about, okay, one side's got lack of balance and stability. If we're doing anything unilateral, even bilateral, that requires any sort of balance, it's going to influence output. And, if we're and we don't want to influence having, the output. No, if the output's diminished, then we're not getting the adaptation we want in terms of like, hey, exactly. how am I going to get this 1500 meter running faster, this 400 meter running faster? But we can't improve the output because they're limited by balance. Dude, like the, the Kaiser squat machine is the perfect solution. So we create well, that's where, like, stable. It's been, it's been a godsend for us on that front. Yeah. Well, and then you can do like unilateral rate of force development work uh, because otherwise it's too unstable. Too. Yeah. Like otherwise you're too unstable and that's where you can develop some like deficiencies left and right. Like some of those imbalances without having to worry well, about the imbalance like, oh, are they begins to grow? Yeah. I mean, probably one of the biggest things we accomplished this year was diminishing that mm-hmm. disparity between the, the two sides. It's never going to be a one-to-one. That's no. just, that's just not going to happen. But if it can be, you know, one to 80 rather than, or like, you know, 100 to 80 rather than 100 to 50, that's a, that's a big win. Yeah. And using the machine affords them the opportunity to actually develop that capacity and that affected limb because they're not worried about balancing or stabilizing or falling over on their face. Like there's, okay, I can just push, let it out as hard as I can. Exactly. So that's a huge piece. Yeah. And I like that idea of like Kaiser squat machines. Again, some of you look at like just squat, like some of the more traditional coaches out there are like, just do a squat, squat fast. Like there's a lot of utility to this tool that opens up a lot of doors for a lot of people that you don't think about. Yeah, exactly. And so that's where, I mean, obviously I guess a little bit of the, you know, the barrier there, there's, you know, money constraints. I mean, even like regular machine, I mean, the Kaisers are expensive because they're pneumatic, but I mean, even just a regular like you walk into a regular gen pop gym and you look at all the machines. I mean, those things are still 1500, 2000, like thousands of dollars you're talking about per machine. So to outfit a place with all the machines that you could, you could want could still be a tremendous amount of money. Um, I don't know. Have you found like, I guess the last barrier kind of thing, like a lack of studies and, like information oh. and I, f- I feel like so much that happens on the para side 
at least again in the small case study case studies that I had to deal with, but you're in it way more is that like you're going off of experience and intuition and gut and feel rather than, and not that everything has to be derived from a scientific study, no. but you, you, you don't have, uh, at least I find as much available. If any, not at all. Like there's like, the way I've utilized the research is trying to understand a little bit more of the physiological underpinnings of certain things, especially on the coordination side or the spinal cord injury side. Because there's certain considerations that we really care for. So our T51 wheelchair athlete, he was a spinal cord injury. I think he, car accident when he was young or something like that. He can't cool, he can't sweat. So he doesn't have any mechanisms to cool himself down. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about like being in Victoria, BC with a guy who can't sweat in 30 degree heat in the summer in a chair, and he's just out there baking. So like we, so there's certain things like that, that the research has been super helpful for us. Like, okay, what stress can we do? So we have a spray bottle. We just like spray him down between laps on the just, track to cool yeah. him off. Like we're his sweat mechanism. So things of understanding, okay, like maybe some of the cerebral palsy athletes. What's okay. What are the, like the neuromuscular mechanisms underpinning this? How does that influence training as much? And one of the things we found is like, exposure to intensity tends to fatigue them a lot more so we're a little oh, bit yeah, less definitely. so a lot of our approaches are more volume driven with bits of intensity sprinkled in less often i'd say the biggest change would be like that's anecdotal our experiences that's not really research driven and there's research stuff in gen pop around some of these things but in elite athlete populations is different because we're talking about people trying to throttle that line of how much work can I do and improve without falling off the cliff and either overtraining or breaking. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's not this, it's not the same, right? Like when we're talking about 800 meter runners, if you've got a study where it's like, we have elite 800 meter runners. And I made this comment to a colleague that was reading a study. It's like, Oh yeah, we did this intervention on elite 800 meter runners about plyometric training and improving performance. And the people were running 155 and I'm like, in no world is 155 an elite male 800 meter time. Not even close. Like you're not even on Team Canada's roster as like the lowest classification as a 155 guy. Yeah, like that's that's like high like school level. Mark Wayrop is running 143 and he's not even a medalist. And he's one of the best Canadian 800 meter runners. <laughs> and he's incredible. The dude's won Diamond League races before. Yeah. He's running 143 or 142 and like... So it's, it's for me, the literature around parasport is the same issue. You're doing studies in gen pop and trying to say, oh yeah, this applies to elite sport. It, does, it doesn't apply. It's not the same thing. Yeah, no. And that's been something I think that's, that, that's, you know, probably lacking. And I, I think my hope is that I, I, and so I don't know if I've had more exposure to parasport in the sense that uh you know it seems to be popping up everywhere i go i see things about paris parasport the world champs that were in paris just recently yep. saw a lot about that i don't know if it's because i'm like very partially involved mm -hmm. i don't know if it's because the google machine spies on me and then my google feed on my phone <laughs> knows that I'm in track and field environments and figures this is track and field, you'll like this. Or if there is actually 
becoming like a notable change in the the recognition, the awareness, and the the exposure of parasport, particularly in our case, para athletics. Yeah. And it's probably a combination of all three. Um, you know, hopefully not as much of the middle one with the Google machine spying on me. Um, but uh, and I think that's a positive move that it, it has more exposure 100%. because the greater the exposure is, then the more likely we're to have research, the more likely we are to maybe be developing new machines or training equipment that satisfies or meets certain demands that, you know, parasport needs while staying true to the principles and the outcomes of, of the sport. And so I think right now we're probably in a time where I, I think collectively there's probably a better job being done at the highest level than there ever has been with exposure and generating, um, you know, excitement and awareness for, for that type of sport. Um, the, the, the side I think we could probably do better is I still think we need to have more explicit, um, like, yeah, we we work with para athletes or para athletes are welcome. They're invited. We can, you know, we can train these people. I feel like there's an inherent kind of barrier with if unless it's explicitly stated, like, hey, you can come try this sport. Then, you know, if you have an environment full of able bodied people, it very much gives the impression that, you know, you would have to be able bodied to be yeah. involved in that and. So I think that's probably the next step across the board where we could probably collectively, I think this is more maybe at like a community club yeah. kind of introductory level where I think the more education, the more training that people can get on working with Parasport, the better, because I think there's a lot of ways that Parasport can be integrated into the current sports system. And that's a little bit the setup we have at Guelph. I mean, the few people yeah. that we have that are in parasport, they're, they're, they're mixed in, in, in amongst everybody. Um, but we don't have like a specific thing that says, Hey, we're able to do the following. If you know, you're in parasport, yeah. you're still cool to be here. And so maybe that's kind of the next step, at least from my experience is that we maybe need to be more explicit and active with our, you know, invitation and welcoming of, yeah. parasport in the in the environment i don't know if there's anything that like i don't know that's kind of my closing thought i think to kind of help grow and create awareness for parasport again you're in it more than i am in the sense of not case study n of one n of two you're working with you know larger groups and organizations so i don't know if it's is that something that's echoed is that i i would know? agree with that statement like i think i think it is growing and I kind of mentioned that like we're in this golden well of parish development, I think in general is like Paris sports just growing and exploding a little bit because it's starting to get more airtime on TV. It's starting to be, become more accessible in terms of viewership. Like Para Worlds for track and field was aired on YouTube, which is fantastic. It was super that was huge. To watch. Huge. It was awesome. Right. Like in a sport like track and field, it's already really hard to watch the best of times. I'm hoping with the tension and the growth, it creates better opportunities for some of the para athletes in terms of money, especially because when we're talking about athletics, opportunity to earn doesn't exist very often. And we at our athlete 
um, world champion, world record holder, Olympic champion, 1500 meter event, very, very successful athlete, very high level athlete. He couldn't get a shoe sponsorship. He was like making social media posts about being like, he's like, I can't become like an ambassador for like a shoe company, let alone get a sponsorship. He's like, in what world on the able-bodied side is someone going to be the world champion, Olympic champion, world record holder, and not have a shoe deal? Oh, like, they'd be on. They'd be on a huge, huge contract. Yeah, massive. So like, there's so he actually made a bit of a a wave with that because he posted and critiqued, and I think it was on CBC and some of that stuff, which was awesome to see people bring awareness to that because like you can be a hundred of the world and have huge shoe deals on the able-bodied side. So I think some of the, like the bigger organizations need to take note and make more of an effort around like, hey, we need to financially support these athletes because like they're incredibly talented, successful athletes who are doing amazing things. No, like uh, like the disparity between the two isn't, is there. So that's a big push for me, I would say on that side. It's like the financials need to start coming along with it, like with, and hopefully with the sport getting more airtime and with the popularity growing, I hope that starts to happen more and more where like, these folks at least get sponsorships like guys come on what are we doing here yeah no like you said I, I would agree i think it's you know things are trending in the right direction hopefully it moves you know more rapidly than it does slowly because i think that's for the betterment of everybody that it it moves in the right direction faster yeah. but uh, i think like you said we're probably in a bit of a golden age here where yeah. this could be the time to really kind of make a difference for for that and kind of get it on level playing field in the sense that you know they're you know everything's you know equal for you know lack of a better word well i think like if athletes can then come in and make a living and pay their bills doing sport like you said earlier that's going to drive the popularity it's going to have a trickle effect where like you can bring more people into parasport right like that's it opens up opportunities and doors to increase the number of participants no different than any other sport right like sport participation is limited by funding and opportunity so if funding increases and they increase the amount of opportunities available more people are just going to do it right similar sort of idea there well and i mean i've always said the number one you know component of athlete development is to have athletes to develop and yeah. that mostly happens in your community grassroots level yeah. if you have 100 kids playing a sport versus 100,000 kids playing a sport you're more likely to find you know the athlete who's capable of stepping on the world stage and competing really well if you have a much larger group of individuals to pick from so yeah the more popular it becomes and the more that we can like you said drive the needle in the right direction the more the performance and everything is going to it's going to come with it because the developmental level will provide yeah. such a solid foundation for everything else to be built to be built upon so i think yeah, that's, man, really that's the next stage get them in young develop them earlier because right now like a lot of para athletes just come in old coming through 20s maybe into the teens versus like just start getting them younger and younger where it's like again like this golden age of performance is just going to keep growing when we get athletes in at 12 years old versus 25 yeah, just competing in sport and, and doing stuff like that. And yeah, no, it's, and it's been, it's been really cool to kind of hear some of, I mean, we've talked off air about yeah. some of the specifics and stuff like that, but some of the nuanced stuff with like the, you know, the chairs, and tire pressure, oh, yeah. and specific mechanics and things like that. I mean, it's really cool to hear about all, 
all that stuff. And I mean, hopefully, you know, anyone who's listening, you know, kind of the takeaway is that if, if there was an opportunity in, in Parasport and you've never worked with Parasport or anything like that, like it's, again, probably 90% of it's the same. It's coaching. It's, yeah. you know, knowing your principles and, you know, working with individuals, communicating with individuals and a lot more of it is the same than different. So hopefully this is maybe remove some barriers or, or like the, you know, a daunting thing of like, Oh, I've never worked with Parasport. So I can't work with Parasport. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, good coaches are good coaches and no yeah. matter what they're in, no matter where they're coaching, a good coach is going to do, is going to do the job wherever they go. hundred percent agree. Yeah. Coaching's coaching. If you're good at what you do, it doesn't matter who's in front of you. I mean, one thing that I think does matter is what you're listening to. Um, do you do you play music when you're in the weight room? Oh, yeah, of course. This, the okay. speakers are always blaring when we got people in the weight room. Okay. Are you in charge of that or are the athletes in charge of that? It depends on the group. So we've I've had this oh, conversation okay. with a couple athletes actually recently. Because been I've covered I've covered for a couple other groups. I've asked the athletes like, oh, like who's the DJ in your group? And they're like, oh, like usually our coaches put some stuff on. Like we don't pick music. I'm like, I always let my athletes pick the music. It also tells yeah, me a me lot too. about you. If it's a big trust moment, if I'm gonna let you play my playlist, like that's a bit of a personal moment here. Like I'm yeah. learning something about you. Um, so my athletes always put music on. I very rarely DJ. Sometimes I will if they're like okay. Christian put something on. I don't have my phone on. I'm like okay, yeah, yeah. But some groups of athletes are, it's coach only. I'm like, ah, come on, open up a little. Let's put some music on. Okay. Cause that's where I was curious if you were the DJ for your group, what you, what you had playing for everybody, but it's probably more, what have you been listening to individually? Not for the athletes to hear because you're not the DJ for your group. Yeah. I mean, I've got one athlete. He's, he's an, he's from England. Like he grew up there's Canadian guy. They grew up in England. Okay. Huge drum and bass guy. Him and I kick off swell. It's hard to tell who's DJing between him and I. It's like, oh, who's playing? Like, I actually can't tell the difference between. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. But no, I have. A, I've actually been doing a lot of running recently. I'm getting more to the aerobics out of things. To my dismay, you're going full tracky. You're going full tracky, man. <laughs> Eventually, the plans to kind of train like a four-eight guy, probably. Where it's still doing, I'm still doing some sprinting, still doing some speed work, but like I've got a bit of an aerobic engine as well in the background. I know it's shocking, right? Okay, all right, it's so all scary. Right. I'm gonna lose like 20 pounds here. Yeah, join the club. But with that, the drum and bass and the trance stuff has been in full force doing the long runs because it's been a bit of a grind for me recently. You need something to keep keep the BPM yeah. up. No, so a good tune that I recently so a lot of women do is I just put on like new and trance, new and drum and bass. And just listen it through. So a new entrance song came through. It's called Mesmerized by AC13. Great tune. That sounds like a random good gem. I've never yeah. heard of that oh, yeah. song. I've never heard of that group or artist or individual, whatever they are. It it's still the only song though. I know by them. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's what a lot of that stuff is, though. You know one song by one person. And then your playlist of 500 songs. Yeah. It's 500 different groups artists individual djs whoever i'll say this i feel like you don't get one hit wonders anymore in like popular music genres because everyone's got a writer for the most part now that they just write 13 good songs on an album i feel like in the edm world like trans drum like you still get one hit wonders because no one has writers like they just do their own thing 
So you'll still yeah, get like sometimes it hits and sometimes it don't. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I have a lot of songs where it's like I've checked these guys out and I'm like, eh. Like the rest of stuff is okay, but they got that one banger. And it's like, okay, yeah. this is a sick tune. And that's what makes it on your playlist. And that's what I mean by yeah. like every at least for me anyway, for the most part, if you got me to put together a list of a hundred songs, drum and bass or house or EDM, it's probably a hundred songs by a hundred different artists. Yeah, you might have three or four by some classic artists and everything else is different. Yeah, I'll have to check that one out then. You've never led me astray every time there's been like a random, you know, like Ubuntu. Remember Ubuntu? Oh, Ubuntu is a good song. Well, that's what we saw our buddies show there. Yeah. When we went and watched some DJ live. Yeah, that was a good time. I still have that one on the playlist. Yeah, that's probably from then like a one hit wonder. Um, what What was the song? Was it Earthquake by Gold Cash? Was that the yeah, Earthquake yeah, is another a good like, song. yeah, yeah, like one hit wonder. Gold caches, yeah, neither do I. I haven't even listened to anything else by them, but that song was that song was dope, so made to the yeah. playlist. So, yeah, it's big one hit wonder, uh, thing, but it's nice to have that. Like, that was a huge 70s, 80s thing in like the rock alternative genre. You had all these one hit wonder bands, like, you had the guy who like who did sunglasses at night, like, that was a one hit wonder, yeah, it's. Oh yeah, the one-hit wonders are. That's yeah, they're they're always good. They're always good. But yeah, I feel okay. like that's where yeah, you still get a lot of that in EDM, which is kind of nice. It's got like a nostalgic feel to it. It feels a little bit more authentic, you know. Like I feel like it's a little bit more them. It's more human. Just There's trial not. and error. It's like ah, they did some good, they did some bad. <clears throat> I don't know. It just makes the good songs a lot better in my. Like I get a feel that's yeah. a lot better anyways, because it's a little bit more authentic. It's a little bit more like I mean, think about your top hundred hits. They all yeah. kind of sound the same. Like your pop music you is all fairly similar. Yeah, no, like, I hear you. Taylor Swift's you. last album compared to Taylor Swift's this album, pretty much the same album. Yeah, exactly. No, no difference. And what about you, Tommy? What's going on in the weight room these days when you're doing your calf races on a slant? uh no so i've been i've been trying to listen to a little bit more of the heavier stuff again okay so uh i went back listened to a little more mashuga 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 they're a death metal band yeah they're it's good it's good stuff i'm not gonna lie with a name like mashuga i've expected our beer something like that it's not uh, dark enough of a name for a death metal band no not very dark i don't know what the word means maybe it's like an old viking word that you know fits perfectly i don't know um but yeah i mean they're like an all-time like all-time great status yeah. that's you know they they don't miss they don't miss. also check them out i haven't listened to much metal recently so i'll have to go check it's them heavy sure it's heavy it's is it dark is it like a don't listen in public kind of band where it's like i mean i throw it on in public because i don't really care but you know it's most people wouldn't like it, I don't think. But I love it. Yeah, like it's a, you're it. lifting by yourself kind of music versus you're here with the whole group and everyone's like, what the fuck's liar? Yeah, and I mean, if I put it on with the whole group there, eh, who cares? <laughs> this is, we're lifting heavy today. Let's get after it. So, yeah. so yeah, I was trying to go back and listen to, you know, something heavier, something, you know, like an all time. You can always go back to it. It's always good. So for me, it was Mashoga. Love it. Nice. Excellent. So, yeah, I mean, that's another another episodes in the book. Fun one to talk about kind of para sports. Awesome. 
Um, it was great to hear a little bit more about what you were, what you're doing specifically day in and day out. And I mean, yeah, always fun to learn, be in new environments. I definitely, there's some good tidbits of information you gave me that I think will be helpful and I can try to, you know, put into practice, you know, in in situations I'm in and, uh, yeah, I mean, always good to learn from one another and another fun episode of the books. It was great. No, had some good, good talking points there. And I'm excited for the next one here. So, yeah. Okay. Well, once again, thanks to all the listeners, the viewers, however you end up taking this in, uh, always fun to have you along for the ride. Hopefully, hopefully you enjoyed it and, you know, appreciate your support and, uh, we'll see you for the next episode.